You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning and welcome to Providence Community Church. We are so glad that you are with us this morning. If this is your first time at Providence, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for being with us uh, this morning. My name is Lauren Schreiber, and I serve at Providence as the director of the Providence Road Academy. And um, Providence is a group of people formed around a simple vision to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And so one way that we're committed to do that is that we're going to open our Bibles together every Sunday morning when we gather. So um, we are currently in a sermon series called King and Crown, where we have been walking through the book of Mark, talking about the life of Jesus and also how our culture tries to find its identity outside of Christ. So um, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, reading verses 33 through 47. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you didn't bring a hard copy of the text but you'd like one, we do have some Bibles under the seats that you can grab um, so you can follow along. So again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 47. So When you get there, um, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together? Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord together. Amen. Okay. I hope you guys enjoyed your extra sleep. All right. If you have young kids like my household, I'm sure you didn't, but it was a good try. Okay. Um, Yeah, hope you're rested. Hope you feel good. Uh, We are uh, coming down to the wire here. We are close to ending the series through the book of Mark. So we made it all the way. We're going to end chapter 15. We have two more sermons left after this in the book of Mark. And so uh, we're like right here. You guys did it. So good job, um, everybody. Um, So what we covered the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the same scene we're going to look at again today. Okay, that's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so 
there's going to be some kind of blending a little bit, a little bit of a repeat from some of the things that were kind of mentioned the past couple of weeks. We'll get that same thing today. I'm going to try not to cheat too much into next week's sermon on the resurrection, but there's some things that apply. And so um, just as a FYI there, but I am excited to get into this text. I want to remind us that the, the scene we're going to cover today, or we've been covering the past couple of weeks of the crucifixion, death, and burial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is one of the most important scenes, if not the most important scene in your Bible, right? This is the all of creation has been longing for all throughout history, what the scriptures have been hinting towards all throughout history and, and pushing towards together, and it happens in this moment. And as believers, this event, what Christ did on the cross in taking our place and rescuing us is the basis of all of our hope in life and death, right? We're not our own. We belong to God. He's redeemed us. He's made us whole. He's the answer. He's the Savior. It's everything to us. Without that, there is nothing. There's a lot of good about God still. God didn't have to do it, but he did it that way, right? But there's nothing for us. There's no hope. There's no uh, rejoicing uh, in anything really in life. Life is just miserable. We die, and that's it without this redemption, right? And so it is important for us today that we focus, that we look at the most uh, beautiful story we could ever look at, the most trustworthy story we could ever look at. The scene we're covering is both horrific and majestic. It's both beautiful and outrageous. And uh, so I want us to keep that in mind. It's a serious thing we're going to talk about today. And it's a very joyful thing we're going to talk about today. So in light of that, I would like to just pray for us together to hear the word, receive the gospel, rejoice in it. After the sermon, we're going to take of the Lord's Supper together and celebrate what we're going to read about right now. And we're going to sing about it together. And so I just want to ask that the Lord help us hear his word. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the gospel message that's come to us and how you've given us faith to believe in you and to be saved forever. God, we're very grateful. We're very humbled as we look at this story right now. And I pray for us, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear. Because God, without you, by the power of your spirit, giving us ears to hear your word, we cannot hear it. Not rightly anyways. And so God, help us. Don't let us be distracted but let us be amazed. Let us rejoice together in the hope of the glory of your name. Let us rejoice together in the gospel. Celebrate your victory, your grace, your mercy upon us. God, help us. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, so for the sake of time, what I would like to do today is I want to just kind of walk through the story. I want to paint a picture of the scene, what's going on here. We've mentioned this for a few weeks now, but it is amazing how many Old Testament prophecies and scriptures are being fulfilled in the life of Christ in this moment. Okay, it's been happening throughout all of Christ's life. He's been fulfilling all the, the scriptures that prophesied about 
him, the coming Savior. But it's almost like a supercharge in this moment of the crucifixion where it's like all of these things are falling into place. And I want us to be able to look together and say, wow, that's amazing. So I want to walk through this story. I want to let the Bible paint the picture of the scene. And then from there, I want to draw out a few applications for us in the gospel that we can rejoice in together and glory in together as believers. So let's get started. Let's look at verse 33. It says this. So right before this, actually, before I read it, just so you know, Jesus was, was mocked, right? He was arrested. He had some fake trial. They put him and they crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Eventually, Pilate gives in. He says, okay, my hands are clean. Do what you want with the man. So they go to crucify him. Uh, he was mocked, put the crown of thorns on. He's been mocked over and over again. Now he's been crucified. He's been on the cross. And this is where we leave off in verse 33. It says this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Okay, so back in the day, they didn't have fancy watches or Big Ben. And so they kind of had a general three-hour segments, if you will, of uh, time. And so the sixth hour was noon. Okay, so when the sun would have been at its brightest and the ninth hour would have been roughly 3 p.m., give or take. Okay, so what happens here during the crucifixion, this is an amazing thing to think about. Okay, this wasn't just like a one of those awkward lunar eclipses, okay? What happens is when the sun is supposed to be its brightest, as Jesus hangs on the cross, the whole land in the region goes dark, just goes dark. And what's amazing to me is the people that are standing there mocking Christ while he's on the cross, it's like they're not even phased by it. They just keep going. And to me, that's such a weird scene, right? You'd think that would instill some fear into you. But it kind of highlights the hardness of heart, and we'll get to that, but... Um, it's just, it's an amazing wonder what happens here. The whole land goes dark. It wasn't like a storm cloud rolled in. It's like, oh, it might rain. Okay, the whole land goes dark. God is making a point here, right? He's proving a point of his uh, judgment on the people and their hardness of heart. He's elevating the sun, right? To think about it this way, the son of God, what, what does Revelation say? It says one day in the new Jerusalem and the new kingdom that uh, there won't be any need for a sun anymore because Jesus will provide all of the light and the warmth that we need, right? Um, and so it's kind of really a way also to highlight what's going on here. This son of God, the light of the world, is being crucified right before them. Let's continue. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Forgive my Aramaic. It's not strong. Okay. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you were paying attention last week, court went to Psalm 22, which is actually a direct quote from this. And Psalm 22, though it was, uh, it was written by, I believe, David or, or somebody in the Psalms. And when, when they were writing it, it did apply to them in that moment. But much more so was it prophesying of the Savior that was to come. And so Jesus is doing a few things here when he quotes this Psalm. And so um, I want to kind of mention those. First thing I think Christ is doing when he quotes this Psalm is he is acknowledging that he is the subject of the psalm, okay? The, these people that he's speaking to, the, a lot of the Sanhedrin members and the people there that are mocking him, now not everybody because there were some Gentiles and things like that too, but a lot of the people present that are making these, you know, they're kind of deriding Christ, they would have known their Old Testament very well. They would have known the scriptures. They would have known exactly what he was quoting. It would have perked their ears up. They would have known that's Psalm 22. And so what Jesus is telling them in this moment is, I am he whom the scriptures speak of. I am the subject of Psalm 22. So I want to read just verses 1 through 8. I know we did it last week, but let's do it again. 
Starting in verse 1, it says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I'll stop right there. The psalm goes on, and it paints the pictures of even them dividing the garments and all of these things that they did around him. But my point in this is that Jesus begins quoting this psalm. He lets them know, I'm the man. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one whom scriptures foretold. And I think another thing that's happening here in this moment when Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that Christ is also experiencing real legitimate judgment from the Father and therefore, at least to a degree, a removal of the loving presence of the Father on the God-man, Jesus Christ. So this gets into a lot of minutiae when you think, okay, Jesus, remember the hypostatic union we talked about a few weeks ago. He's fully God, fully man. But let's just rest assured to say that there is some sort of experience here. It's not that God's not present, right, but that God has removed this loving presence in judgment on Christ, on the cross, to where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, it's important to remember, we're going to get back to this in our application, but we have to remember that what Jesus experienced on the cross was not merely physical. It wasn't just merely physical. There have been people that have died in crazier ways and more gruesome ways even on the cross. It wasn't merely physical what Jesus was experiencing. It was physical for sure, but it was much more than that, right? He was taking on the wrath of God. He was, uh, in a real sense, experiencing hell for the sake of his people. And we'll get there. But I do believe that's important. God the Father was punishing him. The full wrath of God was on him, and he cries out. But I do want to point out something important as well. Is Jesus is not crying out, why have you forsaken me without hope, right? Uh, clearly he understands from Psalm 22, what does the guy in the psalm say? He starts off, God, well, you've forsaken me. There's people all around me. They're deriding me. They've, they've, they've got me. But God, I know you've rescued your people, and I know you'll deliver me, is basically what he says, right? And so uh, it's not like Christ is hopeless on the cross or without faith because he was perfect, but he's acknowledging what he's feeling, and he's calling out to the Lord and understanding that he's trusting him and is absorbing that. So we've got to be careful not to just minimize, you know, make, oh, I have seen Passion of the Christ. That looked very painful. Thank you, Jesus. Well, it was much more than just that. It was that, but much more than that. Um, let's continue. Verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And this kind of seems a little bit random, okay? Uh, some people have said, oh, well, maybe he's saying that because, you know, Eloi or Eli, depending on Matthew or Mark, uh, Whatever, it kind of sounds like Elijah, maybe that's why. But obviously, Jesus was speaking in Aramaic, which would have been their language, and so they know he's not saying that. I think that's a bad interpretation. Um, What I think a better idea would be, and maybe more plausible, is that uh, all the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, they talk about over and over again that when the Messiah comes, he will be accompanied by Elijah, right? Elijah is going to prepare the way for the Savior, 
And we obviously know that was John the Baptist, right? He came with the spirit of Elijah and he prepared the way. He was one crying out in the wilderness and he kind of fulfilled those scriptures and made the path for the Messiah to come. But they may have thought, hey, well, he's calling for Elijah to see if Elijah will come and this thing will really happen. So like, hey, let's see if Elijah saves him. Let's see if Elijah comes down and rescues him. Obviously, it's just, once again, it's all part of the mockery, right? This isn't like they're not trying to make legitimate points. They would have known exactly what Psalm 22 is saying, exactly what he was quoting. It's all a part of the show. It's all a part of the mockery of Christ to scorn him. They hated him vehemently, and they were willing to do these things. So the point is mockery and shame. Verse 36, And someone ran, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, and they put it on a reed, and they gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether... Elijah will come to take him down. Now, I'm sure the sour wine tasted pretty bad, but I do know that it probably would have given a little bit of revival for someone who's dying via crucifixion. Um, And so to have a drink probably would have gave them a little bit of reviving, which makes me think that they were kind of prolonging the mockery once again. Hey, let's revive him a little bit. Let's wait and see if Elijah comes, right? It's disgusting what they're doing to the Son of God. It is evil. Verse 37 And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, in Mark fashion, he is straight to the point, okay? Mark goes from scene to scene, immediately this, that. Matthew's more like just kind of artsy and all over the place sometimes. And, you know, the the gospel writers kind of take different aims. But it's worth mentioning that in the accounts of both John and Luke, Jesus doesn't simply cry out and give up the ghost here. But what happens is he actually says a few things in this moment. I like to read them together because I do think they're important. So let's look at John 19, verse 28 and 30 first. It says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. We get this from Psalm 69, roughly verses 19 through 21. Verse 29, A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. One of the greatest lines in all your Bible. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Luke's gospel says this in chapter 23, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is an exact quote from Psalm 31.5. And having said that, he breathed his last. So what we see in this moment is Jesus gives out this loud cry, which, by the way, would have been very hard to do via crucifixion, to talk at all uh, because you're just trying to breathe. But Jesus cries out a few things. One, he says, it's finished, which is an amazing line for us. All the wrath of God was absorbed in him. We'll get to that point in a second. It is finished. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which, like we said, Jesus was not suffering without hope. He knew what he was doing. He is the God-man after all. So I think it's important to see that in the scene because he wasn't just crying out, but he was saying these amazing things on the cross about what was happening to him that give us a lot of color to the scene. And then verse 38, this just gets, you thought that was wild, this gets extra wild, okay? Um, Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, now I am not a man that knows thread counts, okay? I know a lot of you ladies are like, I know my thread counts, okay? Uh, You can read commentaries, you can read the books of the Old Testament, this was a thick curtain, okay? It was nothing uh, to be messed with. Now, I don't care if the curtain was like as thin as a napkin and he tore it. It's still an amazing thing, right? It's not like he's there actually tearing it. The moment he gives up the ghost, this rips. 
But this curtain would have been 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. It was this massive curtain that separated in the temple the holy place from the holy of holies, right, which only the priest could enter once a year, right, to make sacrifice for sin. There's a rowdy what happens here. And, you know, you get the imagery, and we'll talk about it more, but essentially what's happening is God is saying the old covenant and how things used to operate are no more. In my son, Jesus Christ, he has fulfilled as the high priest, the sacrificial lamb once and for all for the sins of the world. It is finished. It is done. Now only through him, no longer in the temple rituals, will you be saved. That's what God is saying in this moment. The curtain is torn. Now, if you think that's wild, you've got to read Matthew's account because crazier things happen. Starting in Matthew 27, verse 51. It's his account. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. My goodness. It's like the start of every zombie movie, right? This is crazy. What happens? The earth shakes. So much so that it splits the rocks when this happens. The curtain is torn in two at this very moment. The saints that are dead in God get up out of their tombs and they start walking around the holy city talking to people, appearing to them. Now, I got lots of unanswered questions here. I don't know what happened. I think they probably got their resurrected bodies and probably went up with Christ. I don't know. I don't think they died again. But either way, this is an amazing scene. So much so that when the centurion who's kind of heading the crucifixion, is a total Gentile, pagan, nothing to do with the religion. He sees what happens in this moment. He says, this guy was righteous. Truly, he was the son of God, right? And by all accounts, seems to be rescued by Christ in that moment and saved from what had happened. So this is wild, but we've got to ask, why? Why, why this way, right? Uh, and I think an obvious answer is that God is showing a few things here. He's showing his judgment on his people for rejecting the Messiah, for not coming to him to be saved, for scorning him, murdering him, despising him, right? He's showing his wrath towards them and their hardness of heart. He's also just exploding on the scene. This is my son with whom I am pleased. This is the one in which all of the hope hangs in. This is the one in which all the scriptures prophesied that he would come and he would make things right. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is happening, right? This is God saying with a megaphone, the Messiah is here. He's here and he has victory over death, hell, sin, the grave. He's done it all. It is finished. My wrath has been laid upon him. And it's a righteous and just thing that God has done and a loving thing God has done. It's an amazing thing. Let's continue. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, so with everything that happened, and the other accounts talk about this too, uh, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And in Luke's account, he actually calls Jesus righteous. He says this guy was innocent. This guy was righteous. Continuing on. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. 
I just want to say it's worth noting, right? You see the, this juxtaposition, right? You get the apostles that are supposed to be like the men building the church, the courageous ones, right? The ones that were closest to Christ, leading this thing, and all of them abandon Christ in time of need because they don't want to be associated with him and, and reap consequences that might be reaped uh, by being close to him, which does happen to them eventually anyways. But nonetheless, that's what they, they do, right? And then you see this juxtaposition where these women that have faithfully kind of served alongside Christ, they're there, right? Now we do get another account that John was probably there as well because Jesus does address him on the cross at one point. But um, I just thought it's worth noting, right, uh, that these women were brave. And a few of these women that are here, they're going to be the ones that see where he's buried because they're following this whole scene. And they're going to be the first ones to come find him at the resurrection. And I, I love their courage. It's worth noting that uh, it's good to be courageous. I think it's just a good application here. They were there. They witnessed these things and were able to give account to the rest of the apostles and everything of what exactly happened. So by God's grace, he had witnesses that we might have this story and know it. And then verse 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, and we're going to talk about Joseph in a second. I'm going to stop right there real quick. So um, just to kind of catch you up on that. So we know, obviously, Jesus came uh, during the Passover when the Passover lamb would have been sacrificed. So this is amazing, uh, obvious timing from God of what he's doing. And this was a big, important day. Now, what we know on the Sabbath generally is that at Friday night sundown, there was no work to be done, okay, until it was over. And then Saturday night sundown, the Sabbath was over, and then work could be done. So what's happening here, he dies around 3 p.m.-ish, the sun's going down soonish, right? And so they're trying to make things work out to where they can get his body and have it buried. But one thing that we don't see in this account, we do see in John's account, is John says actually that the, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees who wanted him dead, they uh, basically came to the soldiers and said, hey, look, like we can't have bodies up during our holy feast. It would, be, it would make us unclean. And so just break their legs, let's get them down so that way it could be over and it could be done with. And that's when they kind of go to break the legs, right? And they don't end up breaking Christ's legs. That's fulfilling the prophecy. Once again, that was told about him out of the uh, book of Isaiah. But they do break the other servant's legs so that everyone can die really fast. But I think it's a, just an amazing hardness of heart on the Pharisees where they don't want to be defiled by the dead bodies on their holy day, but they're willing to be defiled by killing the Son of God. Right, and so you see this just wild hardness of heart. It's another picture of the sinner's heart. But let's pick up in, in verse 43. So Joseph of Arimathea, a respected man of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. And he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. It usually took a couple of days to die via crucifixion. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now I want to talk a little bit about Joseph for a moment because this is important. So Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the council, which meant he's part of the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, right? This is the same group that got together to arrest him at night, to have him murdered, okay? He was a part of this, and actually John's gospel says that he did not consent to what they were doing. I believe Luke basically calls him like a secret disciple, like he was a disciple of, of God. And then Mark witnesses here that he was looking for the kingdom. So this guy was a believer. He believed in Christ. He, even though he was a part of this crew, was not going to have it happen. And so to honor 
Christ, he comes to give him a proper burial. Because in Deuteronomy 21, it talks about the proper burial procedures. It needed to happen within 24 hours of the death. That was ideal. And then there were only certain ways you could bury the people that it would be considered a holy. It'd be a shame if they weren't buried in these certain ways. Uh, And it's amazing to think about because if you've read much about the history of crucifixion, what would they do with bodies when they were crucified? Well, there's one or two options. One, they would leave them to hang there until their bodies decayed to the point of not being recognizable as a sign you don't mess with Rome, right? If you mess with Rome, you break our laws, this is what happens to you. So they would just leave the bodies hanging there for a long time. Another thing they would do is they would just get the bodies down, they'd throw them in the trash heap and burn the bodies up, which was considered a very disgraceful way to be buried, at least in Jewish culture and how God set things up. So that would have been Jesus' aim. But Joseph of Arimathea takes courage. He comes and actually says that Nicodemus also helped him, who was another member of the Sanhedrin that was seeking the kingdom of God that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, which is pretty cool. But this was to fulfill the scriptures. Isaiah 53, 9 says this, And they made his grave with the wicked, which is what they would have done as they would have buried him in crucifixion, and with a rich man in his death. This is Joseph's, basically his own tomb that he let Jesus use instead. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So that goes on, but it talks about witnessing what's happening here. So Jesus' burial, which is an important part of the gospel message, right? You get this from the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, etc. He was buried in a way that was honorable, that was in line with fulfilling all righteousness, uh, and that was really kind of done in secret. Um, And then 47... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Therefore, they were able to show up on that Sunday morning, see the resurrected Christ, go witness the apostles, and the church was started. It's an amazing thing. So what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time, because we don't have much of it, is I want to go through just kind of four things I want us to see happening in this moment. And these things, by God's grace, are not new to you. They're going to be very obvious, but they're very important for us. Okay, we have to be constantly reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ that we believe in. And if we're not constantly reminded in his word and taking great joy in this story and what God has done, we will always be just like the Pharisees, always seeking some way to make it work out where we can be saved without the Savior. And it does not work that way ever. And so let's look to Christ now. Point number one, Christ the Son absorbs the Father's wrath in full. This is so important. Now, I do love this. In Mark 1.1, this is how Mark starts his gospel off. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he doesn't really mention it. Until you get to Mark 15, verse 39, the centurion sees everything that happens at the crucifixion. He says, surely this man was the Son of God. I love how Mark plans that in his gospel to witness to who the Christ is. But how is this seen? How do we know he absorbs the wrath of God in fullness? Well, we get this from a litany of texts in the New Testament. Paul does great work in all of his letters at tying back this gospel, the writer of Hebrews and everything. But let's look at a few things in this text in particular. One, like we mentioned, the darkness from noon to 3 p.m. in verse 33, okay? The darkness over the face of the earth was a sign and symbol and witness that Jesus Christ was having the wrath of God poured out on himself. Yes, it was a witness against the hardness of heart of the people as well, but rest assured it was 
showing that the darkness of all sin, all humanity, was being laid upon Jesus Christ, that he might save many, that he might save his people. The glory of God is shown in the darkness, and he is showing forth that this is the way. There has to be punishment. There has to be wrath. There has to be justice. And God takes his justice out on the Son of God. Number two, we see it in the way Christ experiences divine abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could that happen? No, there's one way. The wrath of God, the wrath of the Father being poured out on his only son. He did not spare his only son, but freely gave him up for us all. So God's pouring out wrath there. Number three, Christ says it's finished. Like I said, one of the most beautiful things in the Bible. Get that tattooed right here. It's finished. Okay? Don't do that. I mean, you can. I'm No judgment, but I wouldn't do it. Be hard to get a job. He says it's finished. It's done. It's complete. When Jesus saw that everything was finished, all the wrath of God was absorbed on him. He said, it's finished. I commit my spirit to you, Father. And he gave up the ghost. What an amazing story. All of it. Not some of it. All of it. As Christians, we don't believe, okay, God absorbed all the wrath that was deserved pre-me coming to Christ. But now that I come to Christ, God says, all right, just don't do it again. I got your back. That's not how it works. That's not the gospel. The gospel is all of the wrath of God aimed at his people was absorbed in Jesus Christ. Therefore, God can look at you and he can declare you righteous. Righteous. All of it was taken upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm telling you, you deserved a lot of it. You do deserve a lot of it. I don't care what modern culture has tried to teach you about yourself. You are not good. You are not beautiful. You are not worthy. You are not lovely. But praise God that he's in the business of loving unlovely people, of saving unworthy people, and making a story of redemption out of it, right? That's the story of the gospel. That's what we believe. That's what we teach our kids. That's what we preach about. That's what we sing about. And praise God that he did it. I got a few texts I want to read. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorites. I quote it all the time. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What we're seeing is this scene played out in narrative form, right? Christ, the only one worthy to not have wrath upon himself, he was in our place, took on the wrath, gave us his righteousness. Martin Luther called this the great exchange and made us new. Colossians 2, 13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I love this text. Such a good image, right? The record of debt that stood against you, not just from like now and past, but your whole life, as you're going to continue to sin and mess up, that whole record of debt that stood against you, God set it aside. How? By nailing it to the cross and in so doing, triumphing over evil. 
What an amazing thing God does. Now, this brings me to my second point because we got a problem we got to answer, okay? Number two is that Christ the just justifies sinners, okay? Let me tell you what the biggest problem in your Bible is. If God is just, how can he rescue unjust people? It's a good question. What do you deserve for sinning? You deserve the wrath of God, right? Plain and simple. You deserve it. It's yours, and it ought to come to you, okay? The Bible teaches over and over again, okay? This is one of the biggest problems in your Bible. How do you solve it? Proverbs 17.5 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It's an abomination to justify the wicked. Now, in our modern world, we kind of view love like this. Oh, love is, uh, you know, it's just forgetting about it, man. Just for, for, even forget, you know, worried about it. It's, it's all good. Just let it go. And from a human perspective, that makes some sense. It kind of works. But then when we start to apply that to God, where we just say, oh, God, just, just let it go. Man, we're all trying here, okay? We're good people just trying to make it. You put us in this situation. You know, we get sick and all these things happen. And it's like we kind of start to theologize God as like this guy is just like, hey, don't worry about it. Doesn't work that way. Why? God's just. If God's just, you have to die. If God's just, you have to be slain. If God's just, the wrath is on you. Now you guys know where I'm going, right? God's amazing God. It's this mystery that was hidden for ages and now revealed to you by his grace. Romans 3, 21 to 26 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, which means he was in our stead, took our place to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love this line. It's so good. First John, he'll later explain that we can ask God for forgiveness because he's both uh, basically just and right to forgive us, right? Because he's paid it. So I want you to think about it this way. Because here's, here's the answer, right? So in all of the Bible, over and over again, God is rescuing people. What does he do? He rescues Noah from the flood. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, Noah should have died, right? God said everyone's wicked. There's not one good person. Noah should die too, but he doesn't, right? God rescues him. And then you see this in Abraham. You see this in King David. You see this over and over and over and over again where God is rescuing obviously wicked people that don't deserve rescuing. And he does it, and he does it. This is why the writer in Romans, Paul, says that he was passing over former sins in divine forbearance. Why? So that at this present time, in his righteousness, he could show that he can save. How? Well, he's both just and the justifier. Well, how did he do that? The wrath of God aimed at Christ. That's how, right? That's how he does it, is he takes the wrath that you and I deserved, and he puts it on the only person not worthy of it, but absolutely able to take it in our place, right? Peter says that Christ's blood was like that of a a lamb without blemish or spot. 
It's referring to the sacrifices, right? There had to be a perfect sacrifice in our place, and God does it. It's an amazing thing. And so now, God looks at you, He looks at me, and if you're in Christ, He can say, righteous. Righteous. Totally innocent. Totally innocent. Worthy of me. You can come into my presence. You are made new. You are made righteous. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to be declared righteous because you're not, definitely not. So Christ the just, the only just, the God-man, he justifies sinners by dying in our place. It's just the gospel we believe in. Number three, and I'm coming to a close here. Christ the way opened the way to the Father's presence for us. What does Jesus say? He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm, I'm the gate. You come through me. And so Christ the way, he opened the way to the Father's presence. The veil was torn. It was crazy. It's an amazing thing. See, see what was going on there is that you couldn't go into the holies of holies, the very presence of God, without very crisp and clear ceremonial things that would make God not kill you right when you walked in, right? It's just a high priest's job. It's like his main thing is you got to get in there without dying and make the right proper things and come out for the, the sins of the people. So what does Christ do? He absolutely tears it down. i got two texts I want to read. I was going to read a lot more, but I'm not going to do that to you. Hebrews 9.24 says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Going down to Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by what? The blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. That's amazing. Why was the curtain torn? Ripped asunder, right in two. Because that's not the real curtain. It served as a witness to the true curtain, which is Jesus Christ himself. His body was torn. His body was broken. It was ripped so that you might, through his body, enter into the very presence of our Lord. It's amazing. In verse 21, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Christ the curtain by his body and his blood that washes you clean, allows you to come to the Father. The great separation that happened from the moment Adam and Eve fell in the garden to the moment Christ came back and tore that curtain is gone for those that are in Christ Jesus. Access to the Father. We can come to him with a clear conscience, our, our sprinkled clean by the blood, no more evil conscience. We can come to him in full assurance of faith, confidence. We can pray to him. We can be in his presence we can come to him as though we earned it through Christ. We have the presence of the Father now. What a gift of grace and love this is. We're not just forgiven at a distance and forgotten. We are brought into the family of God now as sons and daughters of the Most High. And we can come to our Father. This is what the Lord Jesus did for us. That great separation is gone. And then number four, Christ our life took death for us, and was buried in the tomb. 
He is the light of the world. He is the life, and he took death for us and was buried. Wow. God himself buried in a tomb for you and I. Now, I'm not going to discuss this much because we got the resurrection next week, and we got a lot to say about it uh, going into that topic. But I thought it was important to mention as we see him laid in a tomb, which we obviously know can't hold him down, right? He takes his, he lays his life down. He takes it up again, free at will. Jesus can do whatever because he owns the keys to death. He's victorious over death, hell, and the grave. But for you and I, my friends, as justified sinners, as people now that do not have the wrath of God aimed at them, as people that have access to the Father by grace through faith, we can now face death with courage. Good news. I don't care what's going on in your life, good or bad, this is better. It's much better, right? The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, I believe, if I'm wrong, you correct me afterwards, that all of us, through lifelong fear, are in the slavery to the fear of death. But God has rescued us from that slavery. You're no longer in bondage, but you're free. Yeah, we don't want to die. It's evil. It's disgusting. It's terrible. It's what sin caused. But we know that though we die, yet shall we live. So, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? Where do we go from here? I simply want to say this morning that you've got to repent and you've got to come to Christ. The Bible says, look to Christ and be ye saved. Have you been afar off? Come back. Have you refused to come? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It says don't wait on a day that may never come in the future. Come now. Today is the day of salvation. Right this moment, Christ extends his grace to all of you. He does. He took the wrath. He took the punishment. He makes you clean. He gives you the Father's presence. He's done it all. And he says, come. My yoke is easy. My burden's light. Come to me. And be saved. Don't wait for a day that may never come to come to Christ. If you've been swallowed up by the deathly grip of repetitive sin, if you've been crushed in your spirit, feel like God can't love you, my encouragement to you today is he died for you while you were still a sinner. It does not change the fact now that you're still a sinner. I know some of you are just in bondage to some things right now that if you'd but look to Christ, look to Christ, come to him, He rescues us. He heals our relationships. He heals our soul. But I can promise you one thing. The further you stand afar off, the longer you wait to come, the more miserable your life becomes. God offers joy today. This is the gospel. For our sake, he made him to be sin who did not know sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Believe in him today. He's good. Appreciate you guys. We're going to be transitioning now to take of the Lord's Supper, but I'd like to pray together as we do that. So, will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your love, your grace, your mercy. We come right now as feeble people. God, we have no good apart from you inside of us. We are weak. We are sinful. We have a hard time believing. We repeat the same things over and over and over and over again like we're blind and can't see 
what you've done for us. God, I pray that you'd rescue all of us right now in this room. That God, you'd help us where we're weak, be our strength. Where we're blind, be our sight. Where we're dying, be our life. Lord, we need you. And we thank you for the grace and mercy of this great gospel that we believe. The mystery throughout all ages has been revealed to us. And in that we rejoice greatly right now as your saints, O Lord. God, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you that we can look at death and we can mock death. Because you've won. God, you're victorious. We can look at the enemy that may try to accuse us and say, Ah, but Christ has paid it. He's paid it all. Not just a little bit. We can sing together many great things about how you've rescued us, you've redeemed us, you've loved us. God, you are so good. You're so great. And I pray right now as we respond by taking your supper, your broken body, which is the new veil in which we enter the holies of holies, and your spilt blood that sprinkles the mercy seat, sprinkles our conscience, and washes us as white as snow. May we be reminded of these things. May we worship you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.